0: This is a CBC Podcast. Hi there, it's Pia, and every Wednesday we're bringing you a bonus podcast. One handpicked story from the week's round of the Sunday Magazine that we think is definitely worth hearing or hearing again. Of course, you can hear all of our stories on the full podcast that we put out on Sunday and on the CBC Listen app. All right, here's this week's highlight. In the late spring of 2020, there was a lot of talk about having reached a turning point in the fight for racial equality as widespread protests erupted around the world following the murder of George Floyd at the hands of four Minneapolis police officers. Its ripples soon transcended the streets, prompting new diversity initiatives from classrooms to boardrooms. Fast forward to today, though, and those diversity, equity and inclusion programs are under new scrutiny, particularly in the United States. Several American states have banned DEI efforts on campuses and in government departments. But my next guest says, against the odds, strides in social justice have still been made. Ichioma Olu's new book highlights the visible and invisible anti-racism work being done by people from many walks of life. It is called Be a Revolution, how everyday people are fighting oppression and changing the world and how you can too. Ijeoma, hello. It is nice to meet you. Oh, it's so lovely. You have been writing about race and racism uh, for about a decade or so now. We collectively um, have been talking more about race and racism in recent years. And so I just want to set this up. Six years ago, you put out your, your breakthrough book. Um, so you want to talk about race and for people who have not read that. This is sort of a a guide for people about navigating this stuff. So Ijeoma, when we fast forward to
1: 2024, have we gotten any better about talking about race and racism? I think that there are people coming to these discussions every day, right? So I think that, it. A lot of people have gotten better, and then some people are just now realizing that it's something they should try to talk about. I think that a lot of us have a lot more verbiage around systemic racism and interpersonal racism that, that can be helpful for conversations. Uh, and I am seeing that kind of interpersonal uh, progress being made. Uh, systemically, you know, that that's another story.
0: Mm. I guess broadly, where are you seeing sort of
1: the, the traps or the pitfalls at this point? I think that it's really easy to learn words and not follow through with the actions that those words would entail, right? It's really easy to say, I'm an anti-racist without actually having to engage in active anti-racism. And so I think that a lot of people's vocabulary has increased, but that really critical look at how they move through the world and how they might be impacting systems and how they might be contributing to harm is something that we still have to make a lot of progress around.
0: So if you this new book of yours is sort of taking that next step from from its predecessor, it's looking at action that people can take towards um, racial justice. And that focus of this book was in part inspired, as I understand it, by a personal tragedy that you experienced. Can you just kind of connect those dots for me?
1: Yeah, certainly. You know, um, when I decided to write this book, I was in this place of overall exhaustion, right? I had been writing about violent white supremacy for many years, and I was worn out and traumatized and tired, and I was going to take a break. And then, um, you know, I was wondering if this was how I wanted to take my break, if I wanted the last work I did for a while to be from this place, or if I wanted something more positive. And then in 2020, the pandemic hit, and our home burned down, <laughs> and oh, wow. in all of these sorts of disasters that we're all facing, it really underscored to me how vital our communities are. It was once again, you know, story after story, including in my own personal life, of how no matter how bad things are, the reason why we survive and are able to survive and five moments of joy is because of community care and this really radical work that's being quietly done in our communities.
0: And so your whole kind of thesis about this book, and I think it's important to talk about this kind of um, at at the top, is about you're very intentional about centering loving action rather than pain, because especially in the last number of years, um, when we've been hearing more about these stories, talking more about this, I think sometimes we get overshadowed all the good work that's being done and the strides that are being made by the very real but uncomfortable, painful, even traumatizing situations for some. So. Talk to me about the joy and
1: love that you see in, in action here. You know, it really is the story of our survival. You know, It may not make headlines, it may not be sexy. You know, people want screaming and they want strife and people really do, you know, want Black, Brown and Indigenous pain on display. But the truth is, is that every single day communities are coming together to provide food for families in need, to provide emergency housing, to interrupt conflict, you know, Uh, to help, you know, neighbors stand up against unethical landlords. Like, all of these things are being done every single day. And we are finding new ways to challenge oppressive systems, ways to work around oppressive systems. And that is really the history of our survival generation after generation.
0: Okay, here I go, raining on that parade. (laughs) Uh, In a sense, I want to talk about DEIs. Uh, These are diversity, equity, inclusion initiatives. I think most people are familiar with them, maybe at their workplace or their school or an organization. And they really um, took a lot of traction in the last handful of years, pre-pandemic for sure. And now we're seeing this pushback in the United States, but elsewhere too, uh, in our country and elsewhere. How would you characterize this pushback? What's your assessment of what this is all about?
1: You know, I would say that the... The characterization is basically trying to activate this kind of innate fear and racism in a populace. Um, It's not even about DEI and whether DEI is effective or not. Um, It's about giving these key words of, you'll be made to feel guilty, you might be losing out, someone might be getting something more than you because of this. That's really tying into this deep frustration that the American public has with a hyper-capitalist system that is exploitative of almost everybody. And Mm. so it's basically saying, you're unhappy, this is why. And it's a way to galvanize a base to support all of these, you know, different initiatives. And it's really about consolidating political power. And so we are seeing this on the right. Um, And it's incredibly effective because you don't actually have to understand what DEI is, does, or claims to do in order to fall for these kind of keywords that are being thrown around.
0: So tell me, what does DEI strive to do?
1: Well, and you know, what's funny is even in my book, I'm critical of DEI as it is practiced, as the way in which it has to practice. And I think no one agrees with me more often than black DEI experts. You know, they're like, I absolutely hear you. Everything you said was spot on. Um, but DEI is an effort really, honestly, to make up for the lack of what HR, you know, was supposed to do, which is make sure that, you know, people are protected in their workspaces, that they are kind of, you know, their needs are represented. and of course, Of course, we know that HR works for a company, but the truth is, is traditional HR never really wanted to handle racism. And DEI has been this space trying to fill this gap in, but it has no power, right? They're trying to educate people on diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is what DEI stands for, uh, for marginalized populations, so that spaces can become more inclusive, so that people are more safe, so that, you know, we can get more out of everyone in the space. And In theory, that's absolutely beautiful. The problem is, is that most DEI efforts, especially in employee spaces, aren't really empowered. But when I talk to people in DEI in colleges and universities, they're very limited in what they're able to do. And they're trying so hard to just create some safety for marginalized populations in a space. Mm. And what that often ends up meaning is you're watching a movie or film or taking a course and people get uncomfortable and that can often be enough to weaponize people against it. The argument sometimes goes, there might be well-intentioned people out
0: there in HR and beyond in companies who are trying to make workspaces more inclusive and more diverse, but that they're just doing it to tick boxes for organizations or corporations. And I hear from all kinds of people who ask, where are these efforts getting us? So how are you looking at this now?
1: Yeah, you know, I I think that the thing is, is it's not about what people are intending to do and what DEI experts are trying to do. It's about what they're empowered to do or not empowered to do. And that's on the entity that's bringing them into the space, right? So this argument that DEI is ineffective, it's not that DEI is ineffective, it's that corporations never intend on fully implementing what their DI experts are trying to do, right? So I have seen DI experts brought into spaces and they do all this work, they're interviewing employees, you know, they're, they're making charts, they're doing all of this, coming with really educated information of what can make a space more inclusive. And the corporations or the universities refuse to take it on. And they just say, no, thank you, we're going to check a box. And so it becomes a checked box when the entity that brings them in decides it's a checked box. Hmm. But the work and the spirit with which a lot of this work is being done is truly important. But that's not going to change. You get rid of DEI, it's not as if these corporations are suddenly going to find a more meaningful way to address oppression in their spaces. They don't want to. you know. And so DEI... Experts are trying to do what they can with what little they have, and sometimes that can really make a big difference in the lives of individuals in that space. But it's certainly never going to be enough as long as these entities don't actually care.
0: I want to ask you a question that I know you have uh, heard or a gripe, I should say, and I have heard it. Almost everyone is like, oh, my gosh, there you are again, talking about race and racism in the workplace and in the classroom. And oh, I'm just so sick of the last number of years, all this identity politics. What's your answer to that question when you hear that gripe? The
1: thing that always is amazing to me about this is that everyone has identity and they move through the world with it and white people white men move through it very proudly it's just been so normalized they don't even have to name it when you live in a society where the vast majority of things are built to reflect you to suit you you don't actually have to say that's what it is but every person in the u.s in canada has been racialized and they have a racial identity. Studies have been done around this, have shown how easily you can activate white racial identity to get people to vote a particular way. Uh, We all have it. It's just that when everything serves it, you don't have to assert it. It's
0: interesting that you say that, because sometimes when I have these conversations, um, you know, one of the things that I put out there is that people have always been hired, partially at least, because of their color of their skin. It was just that the white skin got you the jobs at some point, and now maybe the brown or black skin is getting you a job in some way too.
1: Absolutely. And when we look at studies about like, who is deemed professional, who's deemed intelligent, skin tone, hair texture, features, all of that plays in time and time again. That is racialized whether people want to admit it or not. You write about
0: specific calls to action, real tangible things. And sometimes, as you say, they're not the things that might immediately jump to one's mind. They're, They're small things that people can do in their very own community. So I'm wondering if you can share a story from your writing, from your book that really sticks with you to sort of illustrate that.
1: Oh, I mean, there are so many. You know, uh, one of my favorites is, you know, when I sat down to talk with Richie Reseda about his um, organization, Success Stories, which he founded while he was incarcerated in prison, um, to teach incarcerated men, in, in especially black and brown incarcerated men, um, in the ways of black feminism, how violent patriarchy had harmed them and caused them to harm themselves and community. So that you could have that measure of freedom no matter where you were, so that you could be, you know, radicalized into knowing how to create change, even from within prison. And as I sat down to talk with him about it, um, he said, actually, you know, I want to talk about business because I'm I'm doing abolitionist business now. And we got to talk about how he's taking these principles. Into starting a business and having a consent-based business structure that isn't extractive or exploitative, and it was so beautiful for me to watch all of these different transitions that even one person can go through that is so consistent with liberatory values.
0: And so, what is a story like that? Like, what's what's sort of our
1: broader takeaway? Like, I, it's a specific story, but what are, you, what are you sort of saying to us all? I want people to understand that no matter where you come from, no matter what your education level, no matter what your interests, if you want to create change you can, that there is space for you in this and in fact it's vital and if you think I can't do this because I've never seen anyone like me doing this, we actually need you more than ever because your viewpoint is so vital to the work being done.
0: Hmm. I'm glad you brought up the work being done Because sometimes, you know, we see uh, a racial reckoning, Um, a tragedy happens, people go out on the streets for a bit, people light candles in a park, and then they go home. And so I want you to talk to me about that action piece of all of this.
1: Yeah, it is so important to understand that every big news story that we see about racial oppression, about violence against... Black, brown, and indigenous communities um, that people get outraged about, and they go into the streets about. There are people who have been working on these issues every day for years, uh, and if not decades, and that we have been finding ways, trying to find ways to survive these oppressive systems. That we have been building up those lists of demands. You see everything you know about, you know whether or not to defund the police. Those are years and years of work that people have put in and study and conversations, and you know, in order to get to this point. And once the news cameras leave, that work continues. And so it's so important to not just plug in when it's interrupting your day, when it's making you feel bad because it's in the news, and understand that this is a reality that we're living every day. And there are so many ways that violent white supremacy kills us. And it's you know, only one one thousandth of the time does it make news in these sort of violent acts, but it's killing us when we go to the doctor's office. It's killing us in our workplaces. You know, it is denying us education and opportunity. And we have been fighting that every day. And we would really, really love some help. Hmm.
0: You just sort of outlined some of um, you
1: know the wide
0: variety of opinions and, and options, really, of how to improve our systems to bring about racial justice. You mentioned the police, which has been um, a big source of debate for the last number of years in your country and certainly in ours. The calls to defund them entirely, some you know call to divert budgets to other causes, um, somewhat change to policing training differently, hiring more diverse officers. Jo, how's your own thinking about? abolition versus reform changed over time?
1: You know, for me, my idea of possibility broadened. What I thought I could ask for broadened. I I think I've been at heart an abolitionist since I was 11, and a relative of mine was beat very badly by police. I understood that I was not safe and there was no sense in which I would be safe with an officer around me and that something was fundamentally wrong with that. And of course, as I got older and studied, I was like, I don't want this. But I didn't think that was something I could say. So often the messaging is if it's absurd to say that you don't want policing, it's absurd to say you're an abolitionist, that instead what we need is reform. but. When you do the work, you see that reform doesn't work. All it does is extend time in these systems. And these systems are very flexible and malleable and continue to grab power how they can. And we do have other ways. And so for me, my real evolution, was understanding what our communities have been doing outside of these systems. Because we have so many communities, you know, in the US, in Canada, that know that they absolutely cannot call the police for any kind of safety issue. And yet they are still working to ensure their safety. They are still finding ways to try to resolve conflict. And when I realized that, that even though I was being told it was impossible, it was something that we're doing every single day, I realized that we all should have the audacity to demand something better to demand mm. that these systems that have caused us so much harm be be taken down and replaced with ones that can actually help.
0: We often often hear about um, efforts to improve things through efforts of harm reduction.
1: Yeah, and, and here's the thing, harm reduction is never gonna be abolition. Harm reduction is important, but only if you understand that that's what it is. The end goal should always be systems that actually serve us and ways of being that actually serve us and keep us safe. And while we do that, there are people who will be doing harm reduction work, because we know that we can't wake up tomorrow and have these systems gone. And so we have to be able to get through this while we do the work. But what happens often is people will say, here's your harm reduction. It's a revolution. And it's not. And if we settle for that and think that it is and kind of take our eye off the ball, the system just claws back even any slight reforms that were made. And we've seen that since 2020.
0: We're seeing in uh, in our city, in Toronto, the last number of uh, weeks and months, and in, in many many uh, cities across Canada and in the U- the U S. the push to have police budgets increased by often police forces themselves. There have been very active efforts to defund the police movements, as we've been talking about. Um, but police budgets in most major cities have have risen on both sides of the border in recent years. How do you measure success when you look at that movement?
1: You know, I mean, this is where I absolutely see what I was talking about, where people were saying that this you know, reform and harm reduction was revolution. Because not only when you sell it to the people, does that get people to stop asking for more, you can then activate that, to activate fear in people who are afraid of communities of color. And you can create this whole story that says, you're more unsafe now because of these great changes that were made, even though they weren't made, and even though police budgets are increasing. And so right now, what you have is a lot of fear in our carceral states about even just people becoming more aware of the harm of these systems and so they're not only trying to get back what they've lost they're trying to buffer it so that if we have another protest and they know that they're going to keep killing civilians they know that they're going to find more ways to outrage us that they won't lose any power again and so that's really the state that we're in right now they're ratcheting up fear we're seeing police you know um, stations uh, you know police forces around the continent doing these kind of silent protests where they're not doing their jobs so that they can then point and say, see, this is what happens when you cut budgets, right? To get people more afraid so that they can continue to consolidate power because they don't even want people to be aware that there's a problem. That to them is such a huge threat that even the minuscule progress we made in raising awareness in 2020 is something they want to make sure never happens again.
0: You know, when we talk about race and racism and, and racial equality, um, it's divisive. Like so many things that we talk about. You got to be in one camp or the other, and we're sort of, a lot of people would say, like, we've stopped talking to each other, that there is a common goal here that humans should be treated equally. Um, What are the conversations you'd like to see us having these days?
1: You know, I would really love if people could just sit with their fear and unhappiness and give voice to it without immediately saying, I I blame you. I would like, because what we have right now is the vast majority of our populations feeling exploited, feeling underrepresented, underserved, and some of us much more so than others because of the color of our skin, because of disability, because of gender, because of all of these things, and yet, we it's weaponized because we don't talk about it because we're told that it's a personal failure or someone stole from us but when we can actually talk about how we move through the world and see these similarities and see how much we're being exploited and the ways in which all of these things are used to oppress us all racism is used to oppress people of all races and yet because we don't talk about it people can't see that you know it's hard for white people to see that oh the fear of being compared to a black person or having the salary of a black person, you know, keeps me from looking at, asking why my boss has 90% of the profits, right? And so these are the sort of things that are used against us because we can't just say, I feel exploited. I feel hurt. I feel tired. Can we talk about these experiences and find out what we have in common? Find out, you know, where we can free each other.
0: You write that maintaining this status quo in many ways can be chalked up to a war on imagination. So just before I let you go, what is, what is the power of imagination in this
1: kind of work as you see it? You know, so much of the story of populations of color has been based on lies lies told about us that we had no consent in, lies about what we're capable of, who we are, how we feel, what we need. But also, that's the story of oppression of all peoples. We're told this is the best you can have to hope for. This is all there is. This is what you were made for. At most, you can climb up this, you know, arbitrary scale that we have created. And that's just not true. We are capable of so much. These systems were built by people no better than us. And we can build something more. We can we can get put our heads together, take the amazing creativity that our communities, our dis, most disenfranchised communities, have had to have for multiple generations and say, what can we build that can truly serve us? But that requires radical imagination of what freedom could look like for us and what we could have. Ichyoma, thank you so much. I
0: appreciate your time today and, and your writing has given us a lot to think about and work towards. Thank you. Thank you so much for your questions. It was a pleasure. Ijeoma Olu's new book is called Be a Revolution, how everyday people are fighting oppression and changing the world, and how you can too. You can find all the stories we bring you each week on The Sunday Magazine over on our website, cbc.ca slash sunday. I'm Pia Chattopadhyay. Thank you for lending us your ear, and we'll talk to you again on Sunday.